This is the Ontolog Forum, uh, May 11th, year 2006, and today we have the pleasure of having Dr. David Ferrucci from IBM Research uh, presenting to the community. Uh, his talk is entitled, Putting the Semantics in the Semantic Web, an Overview of UEMA and its role in accelerating the semantic revolution. Uh, as we all know, uh, this is one of the sessions that we have uh, scheduled around the theme of ontologizing the ontolog body of knowledge. And we are uh, honored to have Dr. Ferrucci uh, join us today to explain how UEMA uh, could help in that respect. And uh, I would like especially to thank uh, Dr. Michael Maximilian, also from but from the California Elmerton Research Center, uh, helped uh, us uh, invite Dr. Ferrucci over to give this presentation. So before uh, go into the uh, session. I'll ask uh, Dr. Maximilian to introduce Dr. Ferrucci. Max. Thank you, Victor. Um, hopefully you can hear me. Uh, so I, I met David, and it's, a, it's quite an honor to um, introduce him. But um, uh, just to let you know, I've met him recently because he came to give a talk, and I thought it was, you know, very, uh, it was a talk on UEMA, and it was very engaging. And I think this talk is going to be the same. So to introduce him, um, we actually communicated also a few times. And uh, let me kind of highlight a few things about David and then finish with kind of a philosophy that I think he has, at least in, in the discussion we've had, and also that I share. And, and I've been trying to uh, discuss as part of this forum and, and until I diving the content uh, session that we've been having. So David is a senior manager at uh, IBM TJ Watson Research Center, and uh, his department is uh, semantic analysis and integration. So he is responsible for UEMA, but that's just one part of his mission. He actually has, um, you know, uh, the other mission, which is, and I think he's going to touch on some of it, is uh, essentially broadening the search paradigm and also uh, supporting knowledge gathering and synthesis of tasks. Um, he um, he was the lead architect for UEMA and still pushes it right now as part of uh, this open source. So remember, UEMA is an open source uh, uh, effort right now. And uh, to to kind of finish on on what what David is doing, and and also I should mention he has his PhD from RPI um, in New York. Also, uh, one of the discussion I've had with David uh, very recently. Um, kind of ended with a, with a statement that he made, which I thought was perfect. Um, so I'll kind of summarize it, paraphrase it. So first of all, he mentioned to me that he survived the AI winter. Uh, you know, he's been in PR <laughs> since the early 80s. But also, he, he learned from it um, and, and watched Google and Yahoo and other companies kind of you know, deliver more knowledge uh, into people than, you know, than the string matching gangs. You know, and and I think he he, he, he finished his statement by by listing uh, you know what he learned, and and I'll just kind of paraphrase it. 
that you mentioned that first thing is that he started appreciating and learning the fact that first of all uh, there is a lot of virtue in less than perfect precision. This is very important for people that you know push formal ontologies, for instance. Uh, less than perfect precision is exactly what you know in some ways happening right now in Web 2.0 with the world of tagging and other uh, areas. The other thing is uh, you know incompleteness. The fact that you know things cannot be complete and you just need to uh, deal with it. And then finally, uh, something that's very dear to me is the fact that, you know, we need to include the role of humans in transforming information into knowledge. So he says that these observations and their implication is what drives his mission. So with that, I introduce you to Dr. David Sewitt. Thank you. Thank you very much. I really I appreciate that. Um, happy to be here and uh, give you an overview of, of UEMA and hopefully sort of get you excited about um, what I think is an important um, an important mission, which is to really be able to use uh, analytics, to use um, te technology that can analyze unstructured information and start to discover and superimpose, if you will, uh, as uh, was mentioned, sort of less than perfect uh, semantics on the huge volumes of content that are out there and that promise to... Uh, to contain and make accessible very valuable knowledge to a broad, broad class of people. And I think that's kind of really what, what drives drives the mission and, and, and the motivation of all of this. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to flip to the second slide, uh, past the title slide, to the opening observations, and uh, kind of kick this off with, uh, you know, sometimes I use this as the, as the final slide or the concluding remarks, but I've decided that it sort of makes a lot of sense to talk about this up front because it helps couch a lot of this material, which at some level can, can, can get somewhat, somewhat technical in how UEM as an architecture is constructed. And I wanted to make sure that as I talk about that, uh, that people have a sense of, you know, why and, and wherefore. And uh, these opening observations kind of get the juices flowing and start to uh, put things in the right context. Uh, the first one I talk about semantics are key to knowledge discovery and unstructured sources. I think if we if we use um, uh, you know the web search as as canonical for for a very effective paradigm, frankly, at delivering knowledge into uh, the broad a broad community. And that one of the things I, I, I mentioned in in my earlier discussions was that this that when you look at Google and Yahoo, they've been more effective in delivering more knowledge into the hands of more people than all the formal knowledge systems uh, combined. And um, But as we kind of look at that paradigm, it starts to fall short, particularly for applications where recall is really important or a synthesis of, of knowledge across many different artifacts. Uh, assumptions that break what you call the, so the known item search paradigm the known item search paradigm being the paradigm where I'm, I'm going to search this repository, I know there's some artifact that was authored in a certain way, it's out there and it happens to contain these keywords and I want you to bring it up to me. Um, to move that toward a paradigm where I'm really gathering knowledge about a topic, I'm trying to get access to expertise. And I remember from the 80s all the work on the expert systems and all the formal representation reasoning that was done in those systems and we just assumed back in those days that you had to carefully encode all this information and carefully encode formal reasoning strategies uh, to deliver this knowledge. And what, what 
you know, was the problem at the time was what we called the knowledge acquisition bottleneck, which was that, well, you know, you can have all these really great reasoning techniques, but the amounts of information you really want to get access to just aren't encoded and uh, in, in that formal representation. And yet now we find now we find huge volumes of information accessible at least to the basic technology of string matching that you find in web search. But now with 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 the, because the volumes and the relative you know uh, noise level is so great that the simple keyword matching is not not cutting it. And the assumption that there's that known item out there just really isn't an assumption you can make anymore. But in fact, you may want to read three or four documents or find a passage here and a fact there and an entity there and have the computer help you assemble the things that are relevant to, to, your, to your task. So we need richer semantics um, so that we can focus, filter, uh, and, and synthesize the, the relevant knowledge from, from those, those huge masses of information. The, the next point is a point about ma uh, that massive manual semantic annotation is not likely. So this notion that, um, well, gee, if, if, if we can get all this stuff tagged appropriately and, and annotated with the right semantics, Shang-Yu-Li, we can then be in a position to exploit, uh, you know, all, all, all this knowledge. We can, we can advance the paradigm from known item keyword search to something that really gathers and delivers task relevant knowledge. Uh, but the issue is there that, that the, the volumes are just tremendous. This becomes sort of, uh, I think, somewhat a pipe dream. But even if you would assume that, our, that all content authors were going to carefully and effectively tag up their stuff, there's another aspect of this, which that the user's view is different from the author's view. What I mean by the user's view is the person who's searching for information, the person who has a thirst or a need for a certain class of knowledge to solve a particular problem, who is lacking in expertise and needs the help, and has a particular perspective on the domain that may vary in many ways from the author's perspective. It may vary in the, in the vocabulary, uh, the language, the forms of expression, uh, the way they're couching or casting the problem. and when, when, you take in, when you take into consideration that the information that you want to get access to now has to be tagged, not just from the perspective of how the, how the author thought it should be encoded, but in fact how every person who might be querying it or every system who might be querying it would like to view it, the annotation problem becomes um, uh, much worse. So, you know, the, 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 um, the conclusion here or the hypothesis here uh, is that automated, automated annotation is really essential. It's an essential part of any, of any solution in the space. And that to enable that, many component annotators, or uh, what I'll call later analysis engines, that uh, look at the unstructured content and try to do a, a, a assign semantics to the, to the components therein, must emerge and they must be combined. It must be easy to take these things, combine them, reuse them, and advance the, the quality and, and, and the uh, coverage uh, uh, and, and the breadth of, of these capabilities. The third point is that um, you need the right enabler and the right expectations. So that means, and what I mean by there is, what I mean uh, by that is that uh, because 
these various components that can start to automate the process of assigning semantics to unstructured content has to happen in a, at a very large scale, uh, we need to enable that process, and we need to enable the process of combining and reusing these various sorts of analytics in effective ways. And uh, so making these components interoperable with a common set of interfaces and a common representation schemes and so forth is a critical enabler. And that's actually where UEMA comes in. So I'll focus uh, uh, there a lot. But also the other big point, which is that applications um, have to have the right expectations. So, you know, what has always struck me about how effective uh, keyword search has been relative to formal null systems is that they accept, uh, in many ways, accept the reality that we don't need perfect precision, we don't need perfect recall, uh, we don't have to have complete specifications, but in fact, if we can just do a reasonably good job at matching um, the way a user might think about their, their information need and how it's encoded and do some basic technology, all of a sudden, with, ac with the proper access information, we can start making a, diff a huge difference. And the other assumption there is that Applications are written, again, to tolerate this less-than-perfect precision, um, less-than-perfect completeness, the reality that information that you want is going to be relatively underspecified, um, except that applications can accept and work with those realities, but that also the, the human has to engage this process. Now, you look at um, what, what happens in, 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 in the keyword search paradigm, it's not the system that's doing the deep reasoning. It's the human that's doing the deep reasoning. But the human without the search system can't get at the relevant content to even try to reason over. I mean, that was sort of the big um, uh, bottleneck. Stuff. Bottleneck, if you will, that was addressed addressed by uh, by web search. And I, that I don't mean to suggest there that formal representations and reasoning systems can't help, uh, can't add value. But one of the first barriers is focus, deli focusing, delivering, and finding the relevant content, and then saying, you know, w what role does a human play in all of this? The human may be perfectly happy in reading, understanding, putting it in context, and doing, ba you know, basic reasoning for synthesizing that information. So being careful about what role the human is willing and wants to play and how technology can really help, I think, is an important uh, um, observation. Yeah. So then the, uh, the, the slide three gives you a little bit overview of what I'll talk about. First of all, a, a motivating example about why semantics matters, even in, even in the most simple applications like search. I'll talk about UEMA as, as a framework for facilitating automatic semantic discovery. And then I'll talk about a few um, sort of example applications of UEMA, uh, of basically, not UEMA specifically, but more generally uh, automatic semantic discovery in matching users with with the content and finding the sweet spot in a tool that we've been developing uh, that starts to make query interpretation and query refinement with respect to an ontology more explicit, and that's semantic search in the SAW. The SAW stands for um, Semantic Search and Analysis Workbench. And then finally talk about uh, sort of a high-level architecture for extracting knowledge and some of the um, uh, pros and cons of, of thinking in terms of knowledge extraction as opposed to talk about which is sort of semantic overlay, which is in contrast to actually pulling knowledge out of its source. We're going to try to take down everything now. Hey, uh, did, can, can, if the person uh, who has a, a woman in the background mute the phone, please. 
this improves recall, I would not have hit that document with just the keyword, but I, keywords, but I would have hit it given that, you know, the, the, the semantic, um, matching the semantic signatures, if you will. On slide um, uh, eight, we see how semantic matching can improve precision. So here we, we look at that segment at the bottom, that snippet, Simon and Garfunkel's The 59th Street Bridge Song was rated highly by the Billboard magazine in the 60s. Here we have pretty good keyword match, but it's, it's the, the, the content is irrelevant to my information need. Uh, we see that if we were able to do a, um, a semantic analysis of both the query and the content there, we would have a much lower match than we did in the other, uh, in the other example. So here we can see how, how some uh, analysis uh, and, and shallow semantic processing can improve can improve search precision. And uh, so that kind of you know even at just just the level of improving search, uh, we we can see it would be great if we can um, think about how the user is going to uh, conceptualize their domain, and if we can start analyzing uh, both the query and the content and uh, in, in an automated fashion and produce these, this semantic analysis and use that as a basis for matching, we can start to do, a, you know, a lot better. And here, you know, the, the ontology is a very, think of the ontology is a very shallow ontology, basically names the various uh, types and relationships that these semantic analyzers can basically detect. So this is all, you know, basic pattern matching in the text. So let me um, now transition in, into, into UEMA. Uh, the unstructured information management architecture, and and uh, with that backdrop, talk about what the the goals and motivations and basic highlights of the architecture are. So, um, so this is uh, at a very uh, high level. The next slide, this is slide ten now, uh, shows kind of where UEMA plugs in 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 in, uh, in bridging structured and unstructured information. So, on one side, we have unstructured information. And, you know, this is the web, but it's more than the web. It's the, all the information in your enterprise, the documents, the chats, the emails. Um, it's the phone calls. It's the video. It's the audio. It's the talk shows. It's all this kind of content that holds so much, you know, task-relevant uh, and often valuable knowledge, yet relative to your query, most of it is noise. So while it's high value, some of the most current stuff, some of the fastest-growing stuff, Relative to your particular query, there's an enormous amount of noise. The semantics, as we know, is implicit, and the search is inefficient. And I mean inefficient, don't think in terms of how quickly uh, Google might come back with, with results from a keyword search. I mean inefficient when you think about how many of those documents I have to read, how many times I have to refine the query, how long does it take me to really satisfy my, um, my, my information need. On the other end of the spectrum is structured information, and here we have, you know, the canonical example of the database with the knowledge base, but we have explicit semantics, we have efficient search, we have focused content. Of course, you know, in contrast, the slow growing, the coverage is now, it's less current. How do we start bridging those two worlds? And, and you know, traditionally, uh, we sit there and take the, the body of expertise or what wasn't thought of unstructured information, but when we think of unstructured information, one way to characterize it is the direct product of human communication. We start thinking about the, the, the white papers and the, uh, and the exposés and, and, and all the information around the body of knowledge, and we start thinking about formally encoding it. That was the process of getting that unstructured information into a formal knowledge representation or into a formal uh, database and start designing queries 
um, with an expectation of what users were, were going to want to get out of it, and this was the process. Uh, but here, with, with the huge volumes, that just doesn't seem reasonable anymore, and there's a focus on automatic text and multimodal analytics that will start to analyze, classify, pick apart, and identify relevant semantic entities and build them into those structured backends so that we can deliver that information more efficiently. So these are software components that identify documents, emails, phone calls, reports. Within them, they can classify topics, find entities, relationships, people, places, organizations, times, events, etc. And and we can start getting more and more specific into industry verticals, customer opinions, customer opinions about particular products, particular problems, um, threats, chemicals, drug, drug interactions in the life sciences and so forth. Um, so these are the kinds of things that can, can be detected in those unstructured sources, classified, and then made available through um, uh, various sorts of uh, structured information um, uh, systems. We can think of, of UEMA really as a framework for uh, encoding and combining and deploying these various software components that could do this type of analysis. Slide 7 is um, an example uh, uh, document that's been analyzed by a, a, a bunch of um, uh, UEMA analysis engines. And, uh, but again, I, I want to, you know, I, I say UEMA analysis engines. One of the things I want to stress is that, is that, um, you, again, UEMA is a, a standard and a framework for plugging these things together. The technology stands independently of UEMA. So um, this just happens to be a bunch of UEMA analytics, but anything that can analyze text and find expressions or, or, or occurrences of persons, uh, nations, owners, dates, times of the year, crimes, you know, alias relationships, or, you know, you name it. I'm reading basically from the outline in that viewer at the bottom, all those colored squares. Those are the various concepts and relationships that a bunch of annotators we put together uh, were, were able to uh, we use to analyze that document. On the right, um, you see um, the content uh, of the analysis structure. I'll talk more specifically about this later. But one of the things that you recognize there is that the string Miller in that document was, was, um, was classified as a person actually by a number of different components. If you look at component ID, you see J respirator, IBM E annotator. These are two different components. There's actually um, three other components that all uh, try to detect persons. And the reason I bring this out, and I'll stress this again later, is they're not all perfect. They don't always all agree. Um, and, and this is an important uh, point about this technology. It's not, it's not perfect. But there are ways for dealing with that. And in fact, different components implemented with different techniques have various strengths and weaknesses, and you can combine them. And in fact, over time, you can learn under which context some do better than others, and you could weight them and use voting or other probabilistic methods for figuring out which ones to believe under, under what context. Not only can entities like people be detected, but also relationships like owner. And in fact, you can detect the, the uh, candidate arguments for the owner relationship within that text, and you could record that stuff as well. So this is the kind of thing these various analytics can do. So this is slide 12 now. So while um, you know, these component analytics, or uh, um, what we like to call in UEMA as analysis engines, uh, the, the core of these analysis engines are these basic building blocks we call annotators because their job is to annotate the content. Um, while they may be the promise, there's, they come with some challenges. 
Uh, they tend to be independently developed. They're from an increasing number of sources. They, different, uh, te they use different technologies and interfaces. And they tend to be very high, highly specialized and fine-grained. So you'll have um, uh, uh, analysis engines that know to tokenize a document. Know to, you'll have ones that know to tokenize a document in white space limited languages like English. You'll know, ha have ones that know to tokenize documents in Chinese. Um, you'll have ones that know how to detect language, detect what language a document is, identify a speaker in, in a speech stream, uh, detect parts of speech, uh, decompose a doc, uh, documents with very structural elements, parse it from a grammatical perspective, translate it from one language to another, find named entities like organizations, people, places, events, and so forth, um, recognize faces uh, or other sorts of objects in, in video streams or in images, detect relationships, uh, classify documents along uh, some sort of uh, taxonomy. Um, and for each of these capabilities, and this is just a short list, there are, uh, there are um, all kinds of ways in which these capabilities can be specialized. They can be specialized with regard to human language, with regard to mo modality. Um, what I mean by modality is, you know, are we detecting entities in, in a speech stream, in a text stream? Um, even, even, even within text, you might consider chat from chat rooms almost an entirely, entirely different modality than how you might write formal, formal documents. So, um, um, or Newswire, for example, because the, the expressions are so fundamentally different. Uh, the domain of interest. So, you know, I may have specialized analytics for various domains, uh, style and format of the source, the input and output semantics. So, in other words, I may be able to find named entities, and I can do this on a raw document, or I can, or I can do this on a document that's been parsed. I may do better if it was parsed, but I may still function if I didn't have um, parse information. Privacy and security, precision and recall trade-offs. So these components can can be specialized with regard to um, uh, do, you know being very accurate at the expense of recall, missing some things, or finding most things and um, but making mistakes. Similarly, uh, performance precision trade-offs. So if I spend more time, I can I can be more accurate. But you know, can you afford the time? So these are all different ways in which these capabilities can be specialized. The the, the bottom line is that um, the right analysis for the job will likely be some sort of best of breed combination integrating across these many dimensions. Uh, the next slide, slide 13, is uh, just a picture to uh, you know to provide a backdrop for the history on UEMA, which is that you know within IBM research. 200-plus researchers uh, over um, an, uh, a variety of worldwide labs uh, will wor work in this space of, of working on these analytics and applications of these analytics. And IBM Research, uh, to kind of get a better return on investment uh, in these various efforts, needed to get these uh, groups that usually were three to five uh, people to reuse each other's stuff. But not only to reuse their stuff, because some of these things, again, are small-grained and huge investments might go into them. And we have a, you know, a deep natural language parser that you know, two decades of work has been put into this thing. And someone else wants to build an application that's basically finding named entities for a particular domain, and they can exploit a parser. And you know, the last thing you want them to do is start investing in, in parsing technologies because they can't integrate this other component. But even more than having the scientists reuse each other's stuff, you also the issue of being able to accelerate technology transfer. How do I get these results into a variety of um, products and, and, and services solutions in IBM? 
and each one of these engagements ends up being a separate integration and architecture effort. So the motivation was to come up with a common uh, architecture and framework that would accelerate both the science and the business of, uh, of creating and deploying these, these uh, 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 component analytics. On slide 14, uh, we, I, I, I sort of talk about the architecture. UEM is essentially uh, two things. It's both an architecture and a software framework. It refers to those two things. Uh, an architecture, it, as an architecture, it's a specification, a definition, if you will, of a set of interfaces, data representation schemes, and design patterns. Um, and you know, the challenge in defining any sort of software architecture revolves around um, what, con what constraints you impose. Uh, if you if you don't Im impose any constraints. Uh, you, you, everything is very open-ended, but it's very hard to add any value. It's very hard to figure out how to effectively share uh, data structures and interfaces and how to build tools that would be um, used across a broad community and so forth. Um, if you provide too, much con too many constraints, application developers can't do what they want, and uh, you, you, the architecture ends up not being useful. So figuring out what commitments the architecture enforces and which ones they don't is a big part of, uh, uh, you know, doing the architecture well or, you know, finding the right, the right balance and the right trade-offs. Um, this lays out, you know, kind of what, what commitments UEMA makes and, 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 and where it's open. So what things it, it specifies and what things it leaves open. So the principal architectural commitments are a common representation scheme. And I contrast that with um, the actual data models. So, for example, UEMA doesn't um, tell an application developer there are things called persons, other things called organizations, other things called events, and there are times, and here's how you represent time. It does not tell you that. Gives you a basic representation scheme that's um, more at the level in, in, the, in, the, in the ontology stuff, more, more, almost more at the level of the RDF kind of thing, which is here's how you basically represent an object graph. Um, here, you know, here's an object. Here's properties. Here's the kinds of things that you can fill the properties with, and you can specify how the, what the value should be, and that sort of stuff. But it doesn't it doesn't define any particular data model, any particular ontology. Um, there's a common component engine interface, but that interface is task and domain independent. So, um, so the interface is going to allow you to exchange information between these analysis components, but it's going to be independent of the underlying, of, of, the, of the application specific data model, I should say, um, or, uh, or, or what ta particular task is being, being performed. And we'll see that as I dig into some of these details. The other thing we specify is, com is common component metadata. And, and this we actually specify sort of a schema for how do you describe a component. And this was critical for reuse and, and uh, for discovery of the various components for their reuse and, and um, inter um, a deployment in different environments. Well, a so component is something like an analysis engine? Exactly. So that's what I mean by a component here. So um, and and so we specify you know this is how you describe your analysis engine this is how you describe the name the version its capabilities the type system it conforms to and you know and, and so forth uh, what its input and outputs are and so this is is, is standardized to enable uh, discovery and reuse. Um, but what what is independent of is so it. it well, I, I should say that one of the things uh, um, the architecture commits to and specifies is the fact that there is a workflow between these various components. 
but that the workflow is pluggable. So we, we don't sort of reinvent a particular way to do workflow. We just say, look, you, you know, these various analysis engines are going to get orchestrated, and any given application is going to want to decide which one or which sets of analysis engines go next, but we're not going to tell you how to determine that workflow, but rather you can plug that in. Similarly, for transport, transporting information between things, we have a common representation scheme and a way to, um, to encode that in, in, in XML, for example, or in a binary encoding. We don't not say you have to use SOAP to transfer this between um, analysis. You can, but you can use other transports as well. In fact, when I talk about the software, one of the transport we actually include um, a simple uh, a transport um, so that it works sort of out of the box um, without a, a web server, for example. Um, the other point is that the that the architecture, the set of interfaces are defined so that Uema ultimately produces embeddable or uh, embeddable software. So. What we mean by that is we made a, uh, tried to make a clear distinction between system middleware services and what and how UEMA is laid on top of those middleware services. So while you look at an implementation we provide, you know we have logging support and we have some um, um, uh, queuing support and some lifecycle management in our particular implementation that we put into open source. But the reality is you can take those basic interfaces and you can implement them on different systems level middleware and inherit all those sorts of traditional facilities from that middleware. And this is a, a, an important line where the, the architecture spec is different from the framework implementation that, that, uh, that we have uh, provided into open source. You, you, we want to leave the door open to different sorts of implementations and, and within uh, or on top of different uh, classes of system middleware. So the architecture is independent of data models, independent of algorithm. When you, when you build um, a, an analysis engine or you, when you implement your, your algorithm, it could be a rule-based algorithm, it could be a statistical algorithm, uh, it could do reasoning, I mean, you know, formal declarative reasoning. It, it, it's independent of the architecture. Um, language level or domain level concepts or tools uh, were really more at the development, um, uh, development interface, interoperate, plug together level. Uh, we, of course, like to see um, domain level and concept level tools or language level tools built on top of that, but that hasn't been uh, sort of our focus. But the point is the architecture is independent of that. As I mentioned before, independent of workflow engines and transports and independent of back-end systems. So once you've done your analysis on your content, you've identified your various semantic entities or relationships, you can now drive those into any sorts of back-end, the knowledge base, search engine index, um, a, a, um, a database or what have you. Slide 15 talks about Yuma, the software. So here's where we have created a framework. This is what we've uh, put out um, into open source. It's a Java-based framework, uh, and um, it allows you to build component or it supports the, the creation of components in Java, but also in C++. You can build analysis engines in C++ as well and layered on top of C++ is uh, the ability to create components in Perl and Python. Um, it supports co-located and service-oriented deployments. So this means you can create a bunch of these analysis engines um, and you can get them to all share memory. So it's almost, uh, you could think of it as almost like a Blackboard kind of architecture. 
um, where they can all be uh, um, reading from this um, common uh, data representation. They could be drawing inferences about the content and asserting new things into that common representation. Um, it, the workflows tend to be synchronous, uh, but again, that's, you can actually build other of, uh, control paradigms in UEMA. But the point is that they can be all sharing this memory in, uh, sharing this space in memory, or, you know, any one of these component engines can be deployed as a service, and the framework will do the serialization and the shipping, um, you know, over the, the plug and transport to that, to that service, get it back, and, and sort of keep the workflow going uh, for you. So the framework, again, you can think of it as, as allowing these things to interoperate and play together. Um, there are high-performance APIs, so as part of the implementation, we take this common uh, uh, structure, we call the CAS, and I'll go into it in some detail in a bit, the common analysis structure, and we provide an implementation for it that's uh, uh, heat-based implementation, it's, it's, uh, it performs very well. Uh, we actually have an implementation both in C and in, and in, and in Java. And we, that CAS has methods for producing a binary serialization as well as uh, uh, an XML serialization of its content. The binary serialization is used to communicate rapidly between Java and C++ components. Um, you can get this thing. There's actually a software development kit available on the web uh, uh, from the AlphaWorks site. Uh, it, it includes the job installed, the, the ability to create the C++ components. It has tutorial development level, utilities, and tooling. It actually includes a search engine. Um, the reason why we included the search engine uh, that can exploit the results of this semantic analysis, all um, of the kind of example I showed you earlier, um, was to basically motivate people to, to understand um, play with, exploit, illustrate the value of doing this type of semantic analysis in, in, in improving search. So this semantic search engine is included in there, and there's actually some components that help you to use it, and there's some examples. Um, we also put the core framework on, uh, we posted it on SourceForge. It's our intent to, uh, to put it into a venue where it can be collaboratively developed in the open source community. Right now, we're, we're still doing some things and, 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 and posting our updated source as we figure out what's the right venue for it to, to drive a collaborative development of the framework. But, you know, it's out there and you're free to do what you want with it at this point. Um, the reason there's a distinction between the SDK, the software development kit, and the, what's an open source, and basically it's that search engine. Currently that search engine is not an open source, but you, the UEMA framework is. You can plug in any other search engine uh, uh, that can exploit the analytics as, as you see fit. Um, we're also working with Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, they put up um, a website. It's just starting uh, where they're posting um, UEMA-compliant components. And in fact, they're soon to unveil a facility so that anybody can post their own uh, UEMA compliant resources, describe them. Um, they could even submit them so that you can test them and run them on the website. So they actually have a UEMA compliant uh, framework running in the background so you can actually run these components on their website. Uh, you can download them. Providers of components need not provide uh, the, the, the components themselves. They can just advertise them there and describe them so people can search and discover what sorts of things are available. Uh, this is um, 
since we don't have a slide 16, since we don't have a live connection, isn't uh, particularly useful. But um, this is an internal repository uh, that we, in, in which we use this internally, where we post a lot of our internal uh, analysis engines and related solutions that people can discover, find, and reuse this stuff. This has been a model for what CMU has been uh, has been doing on uh, has been working on in their website. Um, slide 17. Uh, kind of gives you the big picture view of how um, UEMA as a set of tools and a framework and a repository uh, allow people to develop these compliant components and then you can have all kinds of implementations of, of the framework uh, embedded in different environments. So in fact uh, this represents a gamut of things we've been doing. We run UEMA on a large-scale distributed deployment, uh, so you can write components on your ThinkPad, and you could deploy them and run them at web scale. Um, IBM has included um, the UEMA framework in a bunch of its products, uh, in, including OmniFine, which is their enterprise search product, but also Lotus Workplace and WebServe Portal Server. So this means that you um, that you can take these components in and and you could easily plug them in. And as I mentioned earlier, this was one of the big motivators for UEMA is to have a standard way for researchers who are developing interesting technologies that can improve both information and knowledge management products to be able to take their stuff, conform to a common um, architecture. And then product people can look at this and go, wow, that's really neat. I can see where that can help. I'm going to plug it in because, you know, I have the, the UEMA framework, you know, r running inside that, that product platform. So um, I'm jumping to slide 19. Slide 19 is, is, is really an animation slide, and it's hard to appreciate without the animation. I'll try to describe it to you. Um, the, uh, the basic building blocks in UEMA are called the annotators. The annotator is an the annotator in UEMA is an interface that someone who understands the the analysis job the NLP if it's analyzing text or the the video or audio analysis if it's analyzing other modalities that's the interface that they implement and that's the basic building block of creating um, um, uh, sort of more and more sophisticated analytics and building applications and what you're you're looking at in uh, I guess in the, in the slide that you have is along the right are these uh, three annotators represented by those um, um, soft cornered squares, you know, the PAR rectangles, the parser, a named entity detector, and a relationship detector. In the animation, they actually start off uh, on the right, I'm sorry, on the left, and they float across the screen, and what you see just at the bottom is that segment from a document, Fred Center, the CEO of Center Micros, and as the parser floats across the screen, it's analyzing the content and it's writing, it's asserting, if you will, into this common structure called the common analysis structure, uh, the inference it's, inferences it's made. In this case, the inferences are taking the form of annotations uh, that basically classify spans of text. So it's saying there's a noun phrase from here to here. Uh, there's a verb phrase from here to here that spans the, you know, is the CEO. There's a um, prepositional phrase that spans, you know, up center micros. This may or may not be a good parse. But, um, you know, the point is that that's, that's, that annotator is dedicated to, to producing those kinds of assertions in the cast. The named entity detector now gets a look at, at the parse and says, you know, with the parse, I can do a better job at finding persons and organizations, detects a person and, and produces that annotation, writes that into the cast, finds an organization, produces that um, annotation, writes it into the cast. 
a relationship detector may took, take a look at this and say, I don't know the first thing about finding named entities, but if you give me persons and organizations, one of the things I can determine is whether or not there's a CEO of relationship there and can assert the existence of a CEO of relationship and point into uh, the artifact or the document showing where that relation is expressed and can write other sorts of options to the cast, like, for example, indicating that it also suspects that the person argument is, is, uh, is um, uh, annotated by that person object and the, org and the organization uh, uh, argument of the CEO of relationship is, is annotated by that organization object and create those internal pointers. So, in effect, these annotators produce this, make these assertions, produce this object graph. Um, a, a basic sort of object is an annotation, which annotates some region, the entire artifact or some region thereof. The artifact is the thing being analyzed, and um, it's, you know, it could be a document, but it could be other sorts of things as well. And the common analysis structure packages us basically up together and provides a set of APIs for accessing that information, for manipulating it, actually for um, getting um, iterators to the various elements that are indexed. So the, the CAS implementation, the CAS structure will have all this stuff in it. Um, it will also be able to retain indices to the various types uh, uh, that are in, in the analysis results. So, for example, the CEO of um, um, the relationship annotator in this case can come along and say, I want an iterator, you know, I want an iterator to persons and organizations. And they basically get an indexed iterator where they can get quick access to persons and organizations found in that document. So they don't have to spend the whole thing. This is called a standoff representation. It differs from, for example, an inline XML representation. This is essentially, again, an object graph where objects point into the artifact. The artifact remains untouched and immutable in this, in this, uh, in this scenario. Uh, and um, and uh, you can continue to add and, and, and reuse the, the, um, uh, the, the objects in, in this graph. So in... In practice, is the CAS like uh, a big thing in memory, or is it something that's being asserted continuously into a database? Or I, I, I'm expecting you're going to say that there's several different ways, but in, in practice, so in the current in uh, in the current implementation, uh, it's a in-memory data structure. Uh, the artifact, uh, however, can um, can be implemented as a pointer to something. Uh, uh, so a URI, and so you wouldn't want to, for example, carry a video, uh, w you know, large video with you as you moved along, especially if you're going over the network. So, um, so that's for the artifact itself. But right now, the current implementation, the metadata, the analysis results are in-memory uh, structure uh, that then gets serialized and shipped. Yes, you can implement those APIs on a central repository. Uh, you can also interact with it, you know, vis-a-vis -vis sort of delta operations. Uh, so there's a bunch of things can be done. Uh, the current implementation uh, does not go against the central uh, persistent store. Thank you. But, you know, that's, that's one of the things, that's one of the obvious things one can, can do here as they evolve this, this implementation. Does that answer your question? Thank you. Yep. Uh, one of the serialization methods and, and uh, forecast is basically to, to serialize into an XMI representation. So we viewed XMI as a um, as a standard way to basically represent an object graph, and um, we we uh, we founded it into that. And there's a number of reasons behind that. Um, 
the motivation for uh, the cast uh, and uh, representation to, to be aligned with um, XMI and the Eclipse modeling framework was so that folks can sit down with um, UML or, um, uh, or EML, uh, Eclipse modeling framework tooling, uh, X, you know, XML, XML schema, or uh, other, other sorts of tools, and basically design a data model that would be directly used by the UML framework as a representation, uh, uh, what we call a type system for a CAS. So the type system is, in effect, a schema for the CAS. And the explicit, um, uh, the, the semantics we use are the semantics uh, currently of eCore, which is aligned with the, uh, the uh, EMOF, the Essential uh, Met Object Facility. So that's the, the semantics that, that it supports right now. The, uh, the syntax of both the type system as well as the CAS itself is XMI. Uh, I don't know how many people followed that. If you have any questions, I'll pause for a second. So um, as I mentioned on slide 20, um, every CAS has a type system. And the type system, essentially, you could think of as, uh, uh, as a representation of the kinds of things. It's the schema, if you will. Uh, um, for what, what kinds of types of things can, can occur in a cast. And um, UEMA doesn't define a type system. It gives you a type system representation scheme. Uh, and as I said, in this case, the, the semantics of which is um, uh, we've aligned with eCore. So um, there are some built-in types like string and int and a bunch of others. And annotation for text-based annotation is a built-in type. And you could subclass from there, if you will, and create sort of entity annotation, relation annotation. Again, this is just a particular type system. Not, uh, not um, UEMA does not specify things like entity annotation, relationship annotation. But this is just an example. Uh, on slide 21, there's another example. This um, type system actually has over 300 concepts. I put this up here only as an example of another type system to give you a sense of what this is. It's color-coded to make another point, which is that this type system was grown for an application where we wanted to make use of a lot of existing annotators. So the people creating an application here were not annotator developers. They wanted to reuse other annotators. And they had a problem to solve, and they started to look at the annotators that were out there and what they did and how they could map their capabilities onto a type system. So this type, this type system was sort of built top-down, a combination of top-down, bottom-up, based on what was needed and what was provided by a set of existing annotators. And then where certain mappings had to occur, uh, type system mappers were introduced annotators that ran, uh, that run sort of in line to map between what one annotator might do to a document to, you know, how the, the type system was designed, uh, how the type system expected uh, uh, the, uh, those annotations to be produced, and what name or, or how they were applied. So if you would say a paragraph or so on, on just what you mean by uh, aligning your current implementation with eCore, I, I don't know eCore at all. Okay, so um, eCore... So, uh, all right, so do you know UML? Pardon? Do you know UML? Some, yeah. Okay, so, so, so. Yeah, so uh, basically there are semantics associated with object modeling, and uh, at a very, at the sort of the most expressive level for object modeling is UML, the Unified Modeling Language, and there's all sorts of tools, there are a bunch of tools around UML um, for 
for designing object models and mapping them into code and so forth. Um, UML is very expressive uh, for doing object modeling, and the OMG has sort of created a, a layered set of representation schemes uh, where they're sort of um, uh, they get less and less expressive, if you will, and um, something that's less uh, sort of a layer that's less expressive than UML is called MOF or the Meta Object Facility. And then even there, there's just a huge amount of uh, facility and something more manageable uh, and less expressive was created, which is called the EMOF, or the Essential Meta Object Facility. And this allows you to do things like create types and create uh, classes, if you will, or create subclasses um, to create properties and associate um, cardinality constraints in the properties and um, range constraints in the properties. So there's a bunch of semantic features, if you will, of that language. Um, now, so that's, that's sort of what's going on with uh, uh, that set of standards. At the same time, there's the Eclipse community. Eclipse is uh, um, an IDE, uh, um, an interactive development, development environment, and, and a bunch of standards and toolings around creating uh, and extending um, interactive development environment. Uh, and um, one of the things that emerged from the Eclipse work is a thing called the Eclipse Modeling Framework. And the Eclipse Modeling, modeling Framework is meant to support um, the, the, the definition of, of class models and, and schemas and things like that. And has observed that you know your Java interfaces, your XML schema, and your and your UML diagram, if you will, or your your model, um, are all describing the same thing. And there's a whole set of tools around mapping between these various representations. So you can just sit and create your UML model, and you'll automatically, you know, in your UML tooling, and automatically generate your your Java classes or your um, or your XML schema for uh, XML documents that comply with that, and so forth. So um, in the Eclipse world, uh, they designed a level of, uh, of uh, modeling expressivity that is at exactly the same um, level as the essential MOF, or EMOF, which is the sort of the third one down from UML in terms of expressivity. And um, the, but, it, but it plugs in, it's, it's workable. They're basically, there's some syntactic variants uh, but it's semantically aligned, not just in, 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 in practice, but also in commitment of the, of the community to make sure it's semantically aligned with, with, uh, with EMOF, even though there are some syntactic variations to support a lot of the tooling work that's gone on in the Eclipse project. So um, what we've done in UEMA is because we think of designing one of these type systems as essentially the, the, the designing a, 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 a schema for an, for an object graph, we've aligned with that level of expressivity and want people to be able to exploit all the open source tooling in the Eclipse and, and in the Eclipse uh, and in the Eclipse modeling framework or EMF. Uh, hence, we align that representation with eCore. Thank you. Okay. So um, here's another picture of uh, this slide 22. as another picture of the cast, the common analysis structure, and this time you're viewing it through a, um, a viewer. So it's showing the various types and the types uh, system, person, general staff, based in at the bottom in the legend. You see the, 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 the document highlighted according to those types. And then, of course, you see information in the cast like, you know, okay, here's the span, Gorman Food, Gorman Food Importers. It's annotated as an organization. Here's the begin end position within, or the offsets within the, the text. And here's the component that actually made that detection. And there's 
there's a certain type called a mention type that this is actually part of this data model. So there's a way to view the contents of the CAS and to superimpose it on a document that's been uh, analyzed. Um, uh, this community probably has a good sense of this, but slide 23 uh, talks about how, um, you know, within a cache you can make distinctions between you know, annotations and actual reference or entities in some domain. So you might have Fred Center annotated as a person. You might have the word he also annotated as a person. But another um, component can look at these things and say, oh, they refer to the same, to the same individual or entity, Fred Center. So Fred Center as an entity is not an annotation per se. It actually represents an entity, but it, it, um, it is uh, represented in a document by many, many different expressions or, or annotated as persons in this case. Similarly, you could do this for relations. So you see Fred Center is the center of CO micros um, uh, as, as annotated as a CO of relation, but up in the upper right, you see Center Micro's CEO, Fred Center. It's a completely different expression, perhaps a different part of the document, perhaps another, another document altogether. Annotated also as a relation, but in this case, the, the assertion is being made that they're both annotating this, the same instance of the CEO relationship. That is the relationship between Fred Center and Center Micro's. This structure can be represented, obviously, in a CAS, and it can be used to point not only into documents, but also into other sorts of um, representations, representation images or video or, or so forth. So, and, of course, what changes in a data model is how you refer to the region of the content. Um, so slide 24 uh, starts to get into the basic interfaces in UEMA. So I sort of talked about the representation scheme um, and how this used to represent the results of these annotators running over, over um, uh, various artifacts. In this case, I'm talking about the actual annotator interface, which is the, the basic building block in UEMA. And um, you can think logically of the interface. Look to the left of the diagram. It's essentially cast in, cast out. Give it a cast, whatever types of that cast may conform to. The annotator's job is to update the cast, look at what's in there, write some more uh, objects into it, you know, uh, annotations, what have you, and return it. So an annotator developer has to understand how to interact with the cast. In the Java framework, um, we have a, an interface to the cast that uh, gives you sort of a natural uh, job in, uh, interpretation. So every type in the type system becomes a Java object. So, you know, uh, person instances are, are person objects in, in, you know, in Java. Uh, organization instances are organization objects in Java. The person type is a person class in, uh, you know, in, in Java. The organization type is an organization class in Java. Uh, based on what you just said, does that imply that the cast uh, shrinks, uh, grows and shrinks as the people put things in and take things out? Uh, and, and, well, it would depend on, on the implementation, but um, you, can, you can put things in and delete things, and it, our implementation of the CAS is a heap-based implementation, uh, and so um, the answer is yes, but it would depend, again, on, on the implementation of the, of the API. It's not something we specify in the, in the architecture. Um, the so 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 you, you so to write an annotator, you have to understand how to get things in and out of the cast. Uh, and in Java, we provide the sort of native Java interface to that to that structure, show all the types of like objects. 
The other thing you have to do to create an annotator is describe it, and this is the component descriptor. And if you go back to my earlier slides where I talked about one of the things we specify is how to describe a component like in an, um, you know, like in, uh, an annotator. And, and there, there's an XML uh, schema for describing the, identifying the component, uh, saying what the types are in its type system, what its capabilities are, meaning what its required input types are, and what types it, 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 uh, it advertises that it outputs, uh, what are its configuration parameters and, and possible settings. So these are all things that get specified, dec specified declaratively in, a, in an XML document. Um, in the SDK, we provide tools for, for specifying um, that information. And the tools are Eclipse-based, so they're, they work in the Eclipse IDE, the Eclipse, uh, Eclipse is, as I mentioned earlier, an open source uh, development environment. And uh, you can use uh, the, the tool there to specify that descriptor. So it's, you know, it's a form-based tool and you know, lets you fill out all this stuff and it automatically generates the XML which is used by the, by the framework. Um, the last uh, uh, element or, or um, uh, part of defining an annotator, or, or I should say thing you have to know about in writing an annotator, is if you intend to, uh, for an application developer or someone uh, putting together complex uh, uh, analysis engines from more primitive ones, is if you expect that you're, a resource should be shared, then you um, register and, uh, it and access it through the UEMA context. So this is a thin veneer that manages the access to shared resources. So you may write something, uh, an annotator that uses a dictionary, and you expect that if you get combined with some other annotator that uses a dictionary, you should be using the same one, so you're going to want to share that resource. You can register an interface to that, to that dictionary, um, and another component would do the same. When I put them together, I can make sure that the, those two dictionary objects actually refer to the same dictionary instance. So, uh, uh, the notion of UEMA context, is that hierarchical so that if I have a smaller context and I know that that belongs to another context, it just automatically says, oh, use it as another one? No, it's, it's not really that uh, sophisticated. The current implementation is really very simple in the sense that think of it as uh, a place for you to for you to register files and other sorts of resources that you imagine other annotators would share, and um, you want to make sure the application developer can ensure that these annotators are using the same instance. So all I do is I go there and I say, here's my my I declare my resource. Uh, it's a file. Here's its uh, you know here's its logical name. Uh, here's the interface I'm going to use to access the file, and you register that stuff. Someone else comes along and says, I need to use that file, and, uh, or I need to use a file. Here's my logical name, and I can make those two logical names associate with the same instance and ensure that when those things interoperate, they're using the same resource. Uh, and it manages that for you. It's, it's really nothing more than that. It doesn't have to do with the knowledge context in any sort. It's, it's not hierarchical in, any, in, in, in that sense. Okay, so, so would it be right to say that the annotated and UEMI context is a one-to-one -one mapping only? It's a one-to-one. -one, each annotator gets a logical view of a shared resource through, the, through that context. Uh, slides, uh, again, it's, it's to facilitate, it's to facilitate the, you know, the, the interoperation and combining of these various things. Um, this is more the higher, this slide here, 25, actually gives you more of a sense, and I, I don't know if this relates to the question you're asking, but I'm sort of drawing a parallel because this is very hierarchical in nature. 
um, you can combine these annotators and, re and package them up and basically create aggregates. So here you see at the center a named entity detector is composed of a tokenizer, a part of speech uh, annotator, and a named entity annotator. You combine the three of them together, the cache flows between them. You can package that up, describe it, and, uh, and, and uh, make a reusable module out of it using the, uh, using the uh, facilities in the SDK. And now somebody can come along and say, IG, I want to do named entity detection because I'm going to write a relationship annotator. And if you can give me persons and uh, some other things, I can detect citizen of and at or located at relationships or at relationships, but I need that in named entity detector. So they can download that and take its output write the relation annotator, package up the whole thing, and deploy that and declare what its inputs and outputs capabilities are now, for example, adding to its output as finding these, these two relationships, citizen of and at. Uh, and, and the framework supports that. It supports creating these aggregates. And these aggregates are, in fact, just, XM, they're just descriptors and XML descriptors, and you could use the tool to define them. And they point to the component engines, uh, and they string them together in, in, in a workflow. Now, one of the things that the the current implementation supports is sort of a simple a simple linear workflow, uh, but um, you can create your own flow controller, and and it can it can you know um, interpret any sort of flow language that you want to plug in to the to the to the configuration parameters. So. Um, I don't want you to think of this as a restricted as a restricted thing. You can create these aggregates, and these component engines can interoperate in, a, in any sorts of workflow you can imagine. In spite of the fact that the built-in flow controller is very simple. So um, the next slide sort of shows you a, a whole end-to-end -end, um, workflow, and, and this is a typical workflow. In fact, it's so typical we we define. A, uh, an aggregate component in, in UEMA called the Collection Processing Engine. And the Collection Processing Engine connects to an external source, um, an architect interface called the Collection Reader. So this is, so so far I've talked about the annotator and how you could then, you can take the annotator, you can give it to the framework, the framework could say, here's your pluggable engine. And now it can put these into a workflow and it can create aggregate engines. And the aggregate analysis engines have the same interface as the primitive ones, the ones that only contain a single annotator. So as an application developer using these things, the interface is opaque. I, de I don't need to know how it's internally constructed. Uh, at every level, it's just basically cast in, cast out. But, um, sorry? Uh, but now uh, I want to um, connect to my external source because not everybody, you know, casts are not naturally occurring things. And the collection reader is another architected interface, and the job of the collection reader is to connect to some external source, be it a file system or a video stream or a chat database or what have you. And its job is to decompose that, that source into units of work, be they documents on the file system or um, video segments in a video stream, and initialize the cast. So the collection reader asks the framework, can I have, a, uh, can I have an empty cast? Uh, here's your cast. And, um, and it can then say, okay, I have this document I want to assert in it, and it's like setting a property in an object model, basically. And now the cast is ready to go, and that content is ready to be analyzed by downstream uh, analysis engines. Uh, once the cast is sort of fully updated and all the semantics are in there, so I found my names and my organizations and my events and my times, and I linked them together by reusing all these various analysis components, analysis engines, 
I now want to take the cap and I want to do something with the contents. I may just want to serialize it as XML and write it out to the disk. I may want to convert it into inline XML so it works more easily in, in, in certain applications. I may want to take all the annotations out and index them in a search engine index so now people can search not just on the tokens, the original keywords, but could, they could search, search on my discovered semantics. I may want to extract relations and start putting them in a database or in a knowledge base. I may want to extract entities and, and do that. So CAS consumers are another in, uh, interface in UEMA of that you implement it, and they're basically very simple. They're cast in. They're not cast out because the idea is that your, the cast has already been updated. It's not going to change at this stage of the process, but it's going to be used to populate structured, structured resource that would, then would be used in an application. When you deploy these things, um, the reason why you see an Alice Engine proxy there is, you know, when you deploy these things, any component uh, within uh, within the structure can be deployed as a service, of, and uh, for example, as a SOAP service or as a Vinci service. Vinci is a transport we actually ship with the framework. Uh, it's just a simple um, uh, transport to make it easy to, to distribute your components without setting up a, a SOAP server. Uh, but you can also deploy these things as SOAP services. Uh, David, by uh, 3Q2006, is that, are you saying that is when this is available? Um, where do you see that? On uh, the top of the slide, user-definable uh, workflow. Oh, on, on slide 27, um, yeah, so, so this is just for this point, which is the idea that you can plug in, um, and, and I think in the actual implementation we call it the flow controller, I believe this is actually going to be out in early June. Um, we're going to update the, the, the SDK and the source with this facility. Um, and the, the idea here is that for any aggregate, be it an aggregate analysis engine or collection processing engine, so aggregate I mean any orchestrated set of these component uh, uh, implement, uh, implementations of these interfaces, these uh, components, um, you'll be able to associate with it your own implementation of the analysis sequencer. And uh, again, I'm not sure what term uh, we're ultimately using. The interface may end up being called flow controller. I don't know, but the idea is the same. And the idea of that interface is very simply, you could think of it as a sort of get next. So the framework, at any level of, of this uh, nesting, the framework will ask the sequencer, what's the next component that should get the CAS? And you as developer can implement that interface. And, and it, can, it can dynamically consult the CAS to make a decision. It can consult some external resource, some oracle. It can do whatever it wants to make the decision about what um, the next component that you see the CAS is. Can, can you, could you add also other uh, cuts uh, entity extractors to this, to this workflow? You, you, you can, provided they interact with, provided they're interoperable at the data representation level, meaning that they can update the CAS. So, and there's a, a, a subtlety there, um, which is that you can interoperate with UEMA without complying at, at sort of the deepest level. So you don't have to be using the Eclipse framework. Um, you don't have to be using the, the tools for creating the descriptors and all that sort of stuff. You can just comply at the data representation level. And what that means is if you get this, you know, you get your you get this message that basically contains the XML representation, serialization of the CAS, you can update it any way you want. As long as you send it back in the right form, it can plug back into this flow. So you, you just have to, imp you, you have to implement that, that spec on your side. You understand what I mean? 
Or wrap it around a, a COTS product. Correct. Exactly. You, you, you create a wrapper. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, slide... Uh, you know, the other thing I wanted to make a point with that dotted red line is that, you know, once you can you know, do your user-defined workflows, um, you can create, you know, cycles. You can do whatever you like. You can completely hang yourself. You can ensure that you never halt. Um, you can really do whatever you want there. And, and, and it's managing that workflow really becomes sort of um, the application developer's issue and, and problem. So we sort of open the door for providing that flexibility, but, of, of course, um, that gives you more, more responsibility. Um, the um, next slide, slide 28, is now a simple example of, of this basic, you know, UEMA template, right? It, it, it's a collection processing engine. It connects to uh, the file system, which has a bunch of text documents on it. The collection reader is really simple. It just reads file from the f files from the file system. The aggregate analysis that occurs or the per-document analysis that occurs in the center does simple tokenization of the document and sentence uh, detection. And then there are two CAS consumers. One just takes the CAS, represents it in XML, basically using the serialization methods, and writes that XML version of the CAS out to the file system for later use or for view, viewer uh, viewing in an annotation viewer or for use by any other application that, that uh, understands that format. And, and then the other CAS consumer at the top of the collection processing engine builds us uh, a keyword search index. So basically it takes all the tokens and puts them into an inverted file. It, it, well, the, the, the CAS consumer doesn't know about the inverted file. It probably just there's some API that the search engine indexer provides, and it hands it the content from the CAS in the right format for that search engine index, and that indexes, you know, all the tokens. But on slide 29, I can show how this can be upgraded. So now I add, I take a named entity detector, I add that into the, into the analysis, and I replace that CAS consumer with a, a semantic search indexer. This is now a CAS consumer that knows how to extract not just the tokens, but also the annotations and the, and the tokens they span from the document, uh, from the CAS, and drive that into a semantic search engine indexer. This is actually if this is one of the examples provided in the SDK. Uh, there's actually a cast consumer in there that's a primarizable cast consumer, and it will communicate with the built-in with the provided semantic search engine index and allow you to index not just tokens but also the semantic annotations. So you could do things like you see on slide 30. So in slide 30, we have a little semantic search scenario. Imagine that we want to search a bunch of documents for an organization that contains the word first in it. Well, first is an extremely ambiguous term. Uh, and um, if we did that, we'd get back, you know, bazillions of hits, depending on how big the corpus is, of course. But assuming we used our named entity detector that knew how to detect organizations, we can encounter a, a different sort of query. Now, the semantic search engine that we ship with the SDK allows you allows you to use this query language that actually sort of got popular in some of the, um, in the um, uh, track evaluations uh, related to information retrieval. This is something that actually came out of IBM Haifa. Um, the, the, the XML syntax is, is really just incidental. They, they use it to, to, to really represent annotations. It actually has a lot of, the, the query language actually has a lot of syntactic sugar and semantic features that have nothing to do with XML but have to do with information retrieval. Um, but I, please don't get distracted by that. The basic idea is that 
I can say in that second uh, query example with the semantic search query, I can basically say I want to search for documents where first occurs as part of an uh, as as part of an organization annotation. So annotation spans some text as as per what was uh, asserted into the cast, and this says find me those documents that contain first spanned by an organization annotation. The second query says find uh, center is another ambiguous term. The second query says, find me, the, says, find me those documents where center is, um, is spanned by a person annotation, is encompassed by a person annotation, and that annotation is further encompassed by a CEO of annotation. And this will find only documents that uh, satisfy, you know, that, uh, uh, satisfy that pattern. So here I can really get, I can exploit my semantic analysis to get very focused in my queries. And this is a great example because first and center are both usually ambiguous terms. And I really want to focus my content uh, based on what my semantic analyzers have, have done for me. Uh, quick, you know, clarification, uh, side point here. In case you do download the SDK and start playing with this, the Jure XML query language actually requires um, plus signs for this, for those things to be required as opposed to preferred. So to only find documents that match that query, you'd have to put the pluses in the right places. Uh, but again, that's a, that's, a, that's a detail. So um, I, I don't know how much time I have left, but I was going to, uh, somebody have a time check? Uh, 25 more minutes. Another like 20, 25 minutes. Okay, great. So let me kind of um, use all this to kind of move on to uh, what I call raising the search bar, and, and basically moving from the notion of matching keywords to really, really gathering knowledge. You know, using this, you know, shallow semantic processing uh, to search and start to help uh, applications uh, get more effective in gathering and extracting knowledge, as opposed to just uh, finding documents that contain keywords. So, first slide 32 talks. Uh, about these two sorts of uh, problems. Uh, one is known item search, and this is the, you know, this is the typical keyword search problem, right, where, the, where I want to find the item or items and typically documents that individually contain some combination of keywords. And the operating assumptions there is that the user is assumed uh, to, to know exactly what he or she wants is there somewhere in a document. Uh, there's one specific item out there that perhaps best solves the information need. And this, this is what, this assumption motivates the whole ranking concept, right? I mean, imagine that I have some information need. I express it as a bunch of keywords. Um, through four or five documents, if I read together, if I read the, all four or five documents, I'd have a great answer to my query, but any one of them is impoverished relative to the query and ends up getting ranked at the bottom. Right? But that's kind of how that paradigm works. So the, the native artifact boundaries are rigid. In other words, you don't look inside and across documents to find the little pieces of information and that, that, might, that if assembled together would solve the problem. Rather, we assume that it's one of these things exactly as authored that may best address the information need. Of course, the magic, the magic is ranking, and the content is assumed to really be the keywords or phrases that are in there. And now it's gathering in synthesis, we define a slightly different problem, which is to produce an efficient collection of knowledge that is relevant to the information need. 
So, and what I mean by efficient is sort of digestible. Let me try to find the digestible set of things that together take and would address your information need. The operating assumptions here are that multiple items at varying grains will solve information needs. So it could be a fact, uh, a few facts from this document, a passage from that one, an entity from that one, um, a paragraph from the other one, that if read together um, can address it. The contents is now really more the knowledge expressed by the documents as opposed to the keywords. The user's query is not so much thought of as a bunch of keywords that have to match the document, but rather a conceptual space of interest uh, that, I, that the system needs to pull together the content will address that, 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 that interest. And again, the magic here is really more semantic matching than, uh, than your typical ranking case. So what are some of the things I think we have, to, we have to recognize to raise the search bar? One is we want to exploit semantic analysis. And in order to do that in a large scale, and I go back to the stressing this point, we have to be able to tolerate less than perfect analytics. The analytics are not going to be perfectly precise. They're not going to be perfectly accurate. They're not going to be perfectly complete. Um, the basic, you know, the, I, I think one of the fundamental realities of the information we're really dealing with is that it's largely underspecified. We're going to rely on the human a lot to understand the context and to interpret their stuff with regard to their task. But at the same time, we can help with analytics. We can help with with, derive, with you know mapping onto some the content onto some semantic model, even if we miss a little bit and it's fuzzy. Um, we can help eliminate noise and focus the content, and we can degrade gracefully toward keyword search. And what I mean by that is that's like the worst case. We can always offer up keyword search as the worst case scenario. And this is an, another important philosophy here is, you know, let's figure out how to effectively use semantic analysis to add value. And if we could do that in a way where, in the best case, we can make a dramatic difference, and in the worst case, we're doing no worse than keyword search, we've, we've done a lot you know, with, 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 uh, uh, to, to, to help solve the problem with, with some, some level of semantic analysis. Um, the, yeah. Oh, sorry, was there a question? No, I was just making a remark that we are on slide 33. Yes, slide 33, I'm sorry. Um, the other point here is the more, uh, the, the other observation here is the more in the query, the better the results should be. And this is, again, another aspect, another dimension of, I think, what has to be addressed when we think about raising the search bar. And this has to do with how we interpret the query. So web search conditions users to use, you know, approximately two to three keywords. That's because recall drops off dramatically. I start adding more and more words, and I get punished, right? And, I, and all of a sudden, I went from a million hits to, you know, two irrelevant hits. Um, and, and this is because of, of, of the way the query is interpreted, which is a conjunction of keywords. Now, I could go into advanced search, and I could start writing Boolean queries, but we, you know, that's, you know, we've just lost, you know, more than 90% of the audience. We want a paradigm that encourages the user to fully describe their information need. So, in fact, interestingly, I suspect, and I have, I have no actual experiments in this, but I'll throw it out there as, as my hypothesis, that the less a person knows about how the content's going to map to, the, you know, how the content is expressed and how the, the, the artifacts are going to map to their, their keywords, the more they want to tell you about their information need. The more, because they're expecting that the more I can tell you about what I want, the more ways I can describe it, the better you'll do. But, of course, that's not true in, 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 you know, in, in current keyword search. So, um, whereas, whereas if I, look, I know there's a document out there, and I know it's got these three keywords.
that I'm just going to give you those three keywords. So it's interesting that we should consider the idea of trying to understand the user's query. The more they type in, the better I should do, not the worse I should do as a system. Um, furthermore, it's often the case that I'm going to give you too much stuff, I'm going to give you the wrong stuff, I'm going to give you too little stuff. The user should be able to refine the query with respect to their understanding of the domain. They should be able to throttle the precision and the recall with respect to their conceptualization of, 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 their, of their domain, of their information need. So we want to make that interpretation of the query transparent. We say, okay, type in every, anything you want. That's great. I'll try to do the best I can with it. Oops, I didn't do a good job. What do you change? What does the user change? The user has no idea what to change. They don't know where the system messed up whether the system failed to understand the tacit requirements. So I want to have some sort of ability to say, how did you interpret relative to uh, an ontology? Can I move around within that ontology to adjust the precision and recall or the focus of the results? Um, the other thing is to be able to cross artifact boundaries. I want to give you those three documents that if individually, each individually would be ranked low, but if you read them together, they'd solve your problem. I want to identify the best grain. I don't want to give you a 10-page document when there's one paragraph in there you need to read. Or there's two facts that, if taken together, um, would, would enlighten you. Right? So this is the, you know, all the things I think need to be done to raise that search bar. Are you saying that uh, this is what you, uh, UEMA will provide, or this is what uh, the... Uh, this is not, so this is not what you, UEMA does, right? This is what... Um, automatic semantic analysis can uh, can facilitate, can enable, and UEMA enables the, the, the creation, composition, and deployment of those analytics. So there's like two levels of enablement here. You know, from the, the application needs to exploit the automatic semantic um, analysis engines, but in order to build, combine, experiment with, and deploy those in applications, we need a common representation and infrastructure, and that's UEMA. Okay. Now, so, so you're saying that uh, slide 33 basically is a uh, uh, future requirement, so to speak, of yeah, what people yeah. are fine. Yeah, okay. very good. Yes, very good. And, and it should be more explicit. This is the, the kinds of things I think we need to start to do with analytics to raise the search bar. Okay? Yeah. So, um, so now I'm going to show you some things we've experimented with. And again, using semantics, using analytics, using UEMA all under the hood. But here's, here's some of the things we're starting to do to address those requirements. So first is, um, you know, what I like to call finding the sweet spot. And here we're using an ontology and an interactive dialogue to elicit priorities, tacit priorities, and select or focus the content for the, for the user. So this is a system, um, uh, we actually call it the QA cube. I'm on slide 35 now. And the idea of the QA cube is, imagine that you've entered <coughs> um, a fairly expressive information need, maybe a paragraph, a scenario, a couple of sentences, or whatever. Um, and what, what I want the system to do is to help understand what your, what your information need is with respect to our ontology, so I can do best to go from a very large corpus to a focused corpus, or to, um, or to maybe help among many corporate to find which one is most appropriate for you to dig into. So think of it as a two-step process. I, you know, in fact, one of the things, one of the analogies I've used is 
sort of um, aligning yourself, trying to pick an expert. So you can engage in some long session, maybe over multiple hours or multiple days or multiple weeks with an expert, and you want to pick your expert. You want to sort of have an initial interview. Uh, does this expert have the requisite knowledge? Um, if I start talking to them about this topic, will they be fruitful? Will it be productive? Uh, do they understand enough about my expression of my information need to kind of ask the right questions, and, and, and can we get oriented along the same, in the same conceptual space? Before I start a asking pointed questions, before I start spending a lot of time, how productive is this interaction going to be? So this is what the, the QA Cube is meant to, to help you do. So slide 35, um, I'm sorry, slide 36. I guess slide 36. So imagine that this, you know, again, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit here because of the animation, but imagine that this, uh, or, or lack thereof, uh, imagine that this base ontology exists in this scenario, and you're looking at that on slide, 36, on slide 36. And slide 37, you're looking at the top, a snippet from a scenario. It says, explore the prevention of opium growing in Afghanistan. So this is, you know, what the, the user wants to do. Um, and the first thing that will happen uh, is that, You'll analyze the scenario, you'll analyze the, the expression of the information need itself, the, the inquiry or the query or the scenario, whatever word you want to use. And for example, pick out um, uh, uh, ma main concepts, like in this case, prevention, opium growing in Afghanistan. And then take those, co those concepts, and again, you've, when, you've, when the analysis has been performed, it's basically mapped those words to concepts in an ontology, and that's exactly the sort of thing that's going on. And then you can position them with, re with respect to, so with respect to your, your background ontology. It's okay, Afghanistan is here, it's a country, grow is an activity, uh, prevents is a relationship um, uh, between an agent and an activity. Opium is a narcotic, it's also a plant. Okay, so I basically positioned these concepts that I detected with my analytics from the scenario. Now, um, once I've, I've, I've done this, you see in slide in 38, uh, let me just kind of play through this animation so I'm in the same spot um, as you guys are. In slide 38, what you're looking at is these concepts were selected, you know, Afghanistan, grow, opium, terrorist organization, and prevent, and they each sort of got sliders. And the idea of the sliders is I can start to play with what level of specificity is important to me with respect to the, to the taxonomy uh, or the hierarchy that I position these concepts in. So imagine that my feedback, as soon as I clicked on these concepts, these key concepts from my scenario that I detected through analysis, imagine the immediate feedback is you have um, zero hits in this corpus you're looking at. There's nothing that contains all these concepts together. Um, and there's zero clusters. So imagine I can now cluster this information as well. But imagine then that, that what I've done is I now expand and I go from, I say, okay, well, if there's zero hits, what if I told you I didn't really care about whether or not the prevention of opium growing was happening in Afghanistan specifically? But, in fact, I'm happy to look at any content that deals with this happening in any country, if not continent. So what I've elicited in this dialogue is that the user is actually willing to compromise. At the, the, in, Afghanistan isn't the most important thing. I mean, just by, I couldn't have known that without entering into this dialogue. For all I know, they were willing to give up on opium 
I, I don't know, right? But they, in fact, Afghanistan was not important to them. Now they have a different feedback. Maybe they have 50 hits and, and, and a couple of clusters or something like that. So the starts, so the, the corpus, the target corpus starts to show up. It's more fruitful if I'm willing to um, be more general along that dimension. Maybe the user says, you know what, I want to look for more information. In fact, I don't even care about whether or not it's a terrorist organization. I'm happy to go to any organization. I get the corpus is more fruitful if you're willing to be that general. Um, maybe it's not important that it's opium. The real focus is that I want to prevent the growing of any narcotic in any, uh, by any organization in any country. What if I'm willing to be even more general and say I'm willing to look at preventing any activity associated with a narcotic? Now imagine the system comes back and says, well, there are over you know, 500,000 or a million hits. So that's more than I'm willing, and, and hundreds of clusters. Well, that's more than I'm willing to digest, and I, I'd like to be more specific. So then they can back up and say, you know what, let's stick with growing, and if I'm just looking at growing a narcotic and prevention, I can, find, I can look at 300 hits and 10 clusters. That's a digestible amount of information. I'm willing to engage in a more detailed study of that content. So the reason why this can be done is because I was capable of analyzing the query with respect to the, to the ontology. Um, I was able to map those into concepts. I was then able to look at those concepts and say, how do they occur in my corpus based on having analyzed the corpus? Provide that, provide that feedback. Again, looking at the query is more of a, 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 a conceptual space, a conceptual space defined by a set of dimensions where those dimensions are represented by hierarchies in, in, in an ontology. Uh, the next uh, slide is slide 41, which talks about um, semantic search, which you've already gave, given you a flavor of and uh, in, in showing you, the, you know, using uh, those queries to, to um, disambiguate first, uh, so looking at first as an organization or center as a person, as part of a CEO of relationships, that sort of thing. So here I want to delve into that a little bit more. So we can think of semantic search as an extensive search that exploits semantic analysis to improve precision recall and, and density. What I mean by density is um, the grain. You know, I, I mean, I know that this paragraph is loaded with information that addresses your information. You don't, you know, it's in the context of this larger document, but I, I, want, to get, I want to provide for you the, the, the densest results. So the saw... Um, which is, again, another uh, research prototype system we've been developing uh, that uses semantic analysis, is, uh, is evolving into a tool for gathering and synthesizing knowledge. It goes beyond keyword search along the various, uh, trying to address some of the requirements I talked about earlier, not all of them. It explicitly uses ontologies. and again, ex of course, exploits the automatic dis uh, discovery of semantics. It allows you to, to throttle the precision and recall explicitly, okay? And again, it's toward this, this higher level vision. So here's uh, slide 43 <coughs> is the basic, uh, you know, four-step semantic search program, which you should be able to understand uh, pretty easily now, right? I'm analyzing the corpus with corpus analytics. I index not just the tokens, but I index the semantic signatures, if you will. And one of the things I want to stress is I'm not extracting the information and putting it into a database. I'm, I'm, I've identified the semantics and I'm indexing them along with the, the keywords and, and, and along with the actual, the actual layout of those keywords. So it's, it's the, the mental model is that the semantic annotations are overlaid and the, the tokens and the, the semantic overlay are indexed together and in context. Um, and then on the query side, I'm analyzing the query. 
with analogous analytics, okay, and, 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 then, and then being able to search now on a combination of the tokens and, and the keywords. Has, uh, has, yeah. has he used this uh, on certain size corpuses just to try out how well it works? Yes, yes, of course. How, how large of corpus? Um, you know, we regularly do it on a million, a million documents, but um, the, the, the kinds of queries that I'm going to show you and the kind of tool that we show you um, is on a million, but the analytics and, and this basic notion of semantic search has been, has been done at IBM on web scale as well. And how well are the results? Um, the, you know, we're still struggling with how to evaluate the results. We, we, we for example, do very well um, in using semantics and doing question answering. We also have um, been able to, dem uh, you know, done very, various experiments with query logs where we show that um, being able to apply the analytics improves um, precision without sacrificing recall. Um, so, uh, but I, you know, I want, the caveat here is that this experimentation is ongoing, and we we don't, for example, have giant uh, query logs with millions of queries, and I can give you, you know, that kind of data. Uh, but the data that we do have, in um, the experiments we have done, is that the semantic, you know, semantics absolutely do help uh, to improve precision without sacrificing recall, and also to improve re and also to improve recall in many cases. Um, so, but, but I think that the challenge, and this is one of the things that we're working on, is how do you define really good experiments for this space? It depends a lot on, um, on the queries, uh, on, on how the queries map to the content. The content could be such that uh, keywords, um, uh, you know, the semantic analysis is not going to add a lot, of, a lot of value to keywords. The corpus relative to the types of queries can be such that it's dramatic. The impact is dramatic. So the challenge is that you can, you can craft these things depending on how the uh, queries are formulated typically by the user community and, and, and relative to the content where this can make dramatic differences or, or, or less significant differences. Hey, could you provide them, may I ask an example of a query which is dramatically improved in its precision? Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, let's look at slide. Um, well, I mean, for one, I mean, I showed you the earlier one with FIRST. Um, you know, if you're looking for FIRST as an organization and you type FIRST, uh, you're going to get a lot better precision uh, given that you're looking for FIRST as an organization. Or center as the name of a person who's the CEO of a company, you're going to do a lot better precision with having, the, with having those semantics than you would if you just typed in the keyword center. Yeah, I, I didn't understand that one where center seemed to be part of a person. Uh, I didn't quite center is like, for example, in, in the example, Fred Center yeah. was the CEO of a company, right? So center is the name of a person. I'm looking for center being used as the name of a person where that person is the CEO of a company. Okay. So in, in both those cases, I'm disambiguating a term relative to the, the, the semantic interpretation, right? I'm saying I want this particular usage of the term to be found, not just the term. Right. Okay. That's where you get a dramatic increase in, in precision. Where you get a dramatic increase in recall is imagine that um, I'm looking for, well, an example that we were working on with the government is, you know, I'm looking for uh, uh, weapons. Well, very often a weapon will be named but not the word weapon. 
So clearly, I mean, I'm going to get a lot better recall because I'm going to I'm going to be able if I have weapon detectors, I would have detected many instances of weapons as they occur in many documents. And when I type in weapon, I'm not interested in matching the string weapon. It's like when I ask for a person's phone number, I'm not interested in mapping to the word phone number. I'm actually looking for instances of phone numbers. So when, by having analyzed the corpus and looking for the many ways in which that concept can be expressed and putting that into the index, now when someone types in the word that maps to the concept, I look for instances of it, my recall goes up dramatically. Now, this is what I mean why that, you know, without um, large sort of statistical experiments, uh, statistically valid experiments, um, you know, you, you, have, you have to be careful about the, the conclusions you draw. So, for example, if I have a corpus where um, every time someone mentioned a particular weapon or every time someone mentioned the phone number, they said, and the phone number is, then, so, you know, when I type in a phone number in someone's name, I just type in the word phone number, it's going to match all those documents because the string phone number was in there. So there, having, having been able to detect every occurrence of a phone number, what, what was it going to add value? Question, what do you mean by corpus? Collection of documents. Okay. So, so basically, uh, I, mean, I mean, document is a very, uh, what do you call it, broad term. It, it, it's... In other words, if it's something like that's written by people in an organization, that already has some structure, as opposed to saying you're searching the internet, where you know look, it could be blogs, it could be garbage, it could be you know all kinds of things, which of is course. much more mixed. Of course. And th th would I still work with that as well? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, you know, anal and this is one of my yes, one of the first points was that one. As you build applications, the semantics will be specialized to the content, you know, to various dimensions or characteristics of the content. So I may have semantic analyzers that can find named entities in um, blogs, uh, on a, you know, a typical HTML web pages, newswire, um, chat, uh, typical email, right? So these analytics tend to be highly specialized with respect to the kind of content they're analyzing and very often you get better results when you combine them and, uh, and you could up both their precision and recall by combining them um, to, to, uh, to these various kinds of content. So the answer to your question is the semantic, the semantic um, uh, analyzers or analysis engines work on various kinds of content, various kinds of documents, of course. That's what they're designed to do. Again, UEMA is just a framework, so developers have to develop these things. One of the motivations for UEMA is that we recognize that many uh, different people, for all these various uh, reasons you just um, uh, suggested, are developing all kinds of different analysis engines. And we want people who build applications to be able to reuse them, combine them, you know, get them to interoperate to solve problems. Now, in your, uh, in your answer to my previous question, you said that the corpus that uh, this four-step semantic search was applied to uh, up to a million documents. Could you give an idea how long that took? Semantic search, uh, as I, uh, I mean, on page uh, 43, right? Uh, yes. I, um, so, yeah. I'm, 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 what I said was that you can, uh, we have applied UEMA um, analytics to um, web scale content. So, right. okay. 
I have, uh, I have uh, my group has conducted specific scientific experiments on the value of that on smaller corpora. Um, so basically looking at query logs and understanding how um, uh, particular sets of queries and understanding how they perform relative to the baseline and so forth and so on on a smaller set, on about on the order of a million. Uh, but the analytics have been applied to much larger, much larger sets to support the sort of semant uh, this sort of semantic search, but again, without that formal experimentation. Right, but what I'm trying to get at is that over that million documents, how long did that process take? The did it take days? Did it take uh, a few hours, a few seconds? Or? The, inde the indexing, the analysis and indexing um, rate on, on that document, is, uh, on a million documents, varies based on a lot of things. So I can give you a quick answer that says the particular experiment we did um, indexed that million documents uh, in about, I, I believe, between 36 and uh, 36 and 48 hours, I'm not 100% sure, but in that order. Wow. Now, now how much now, computing power did you throw at that? Well, that's, exactly, well, that's exactly my point. Okay. So, so this is basically on one machine. Oh, this, okay. is a, this is a highly parallelizable process. Okay. Because you can parallelize at the document level. Okay, so this is a highly parallelizable process, and um, much higher throughputs can be uh, much higher throughputs can be gained. Uh, and um, you know, when you look at what is done, what Fountain, um, which runs the the, the, the same uh, UEM infrastructure uh, at web scale and distributes this over you know uh, many many machines at the document level, you're getting much much higher throughputs. Uh, so that that experiment was done on, I believe, on one uh, uh, you know one um, sort of two gigahertz class machine. Okay. The uh, and 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 there's something else. There's another big big aspect of this, which is how complex are the analytics you're running. The analytics we're running when 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 we're doing those experiments over a million documents include a deep parse. A deep what? A deep parse. Oh, okay, language. gotcha, gotcha, okay. Put a deep natural language parse plus named entity and rela named entity and relationship detection of about 200 different concepts and relations. It, it, includes, about, it includes about 40 different uh, UEM an analysis components. Now, those concepts are automatically picked up from the corpus, right? It's not something you enter into the U UEM... Uh, uh, the, the an, uh, it's not predefined. Uh, it's not predefined right, by the user. Is, not, is that not, correct? Not by the user. The analysis engines are written to find those concepts. Fine. That's what I mean. In other words, that that uh, it doesn't look at the it looks at the input and then it says, "Oh, this is a concept." And puts it there. Is that correct? Right. So it look, looks at the document, and says, "Oh, I found an organization here. I found a person here." I found the relationship between the person and the organization here. I just thought up of a, very, uh, a potentially very interesting experiment you could try with your setup. Why don't you put uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica into your corpus and see how well something that's highly structured and what type of output it comes out with. So uh, that's a test of the analytics themselves. And again, I, mean, I want to stress this again. You know, the UEM is an infrastructure. That's a test of the analytics. We do all kinds of testing of the analytics. That's a great one, is analyzing, analyzing the encyclopedia. Of course, you have to go in, and, and, and then you have to look at it, and you have to manually decide how well it did. 
so doing those kinds of uh, metrics um, are always expensive. But uh, let, you know, let me tell you that the scientific community has been doing these sorts of metrics for a really long time, and what happens is corpora, so sets of documents, are manually annotated by humans, and then people submit their analysis engines, and uh, whether that they're UEMA or not, this technology for doing the NLP has been around for many, many years, is they analyze the content, they say they're detecting 25 different types of uh, entities or relationships, and then, you know, those things are scored. And the analytics get scores, so they get, you know, they're 96% accurate or 80% accurate, or, you know, they have 80% recall. So they're typically scored in terms of precision and recall. Precision right. being, you understand that, okay. Yeah, yeah, so, of course, yes. Yeah, and that's, that's sort of very common thing that's done to, to score the analytics themselves, independently of the framework that's used to describe them and, you know, combine them and integrate them and so forth and so on, which is what UEMA is about. Right, I understand. So, but the, what I'm trying to get at is that if you do that with Encyclopedia Britannica, right, and you've said before in your prior experiments you got 200 concepts, well, it's quite obvious that the Encyclopedia Britannica has more than 200 concepts. It'll be very easy to check to see that if you did that, right, how well that UEMA worked. It says, oh, this is reflected everything, you know, one-to-one -to, -one to, to what human beings did in putting it in there, you know, versus some other factor, you know. Right. No, that's that's absolutely right. And again, it's not. I I I, I don't want. I want to make sure everyone has the right uh, understanding here. It's not. That would not be a test of UEMA. That would be a what, test. Why? Why is that? Because that would be a test of our particular analysis engines. UEMA is a software framework. Oh, okay. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So if you want to test UEMA, the kinds of metrics you test are overhead. Okay. How much overhead in the analysis pipeline did you introduce to enable a plug-and-play framework? That's that's how you would evaluate how you would evaluate you evaluate UEM on how rapidly can you create and deploy an integrated solution. The test that you're talking about is how good are our our, our specific analysis engines that we've developed, okay. which separate, separate from UEM. Okay. David okay. Cecilia here. Uh, just a quick question. What does UEMA use for data storage? What Does it use a relational database, a file server, combination of both, or does it use an object database? You can, uh, UEMA, is, that's not specified by UEMA. So the CAS, uh, which, is a, which is the data structure that's shared by analysis engines, is an in-memory uh, data structure that, of course, has serialization methods um, to both a binary format and an XML format. Uh, when you want to pursue that... So it's that really dependent on a middleware step in there to decide what to do with it by serialization? Yeah, well, again, we provide serialization methods, but what you do with that serialization is uh, up to the application, so you can store it. And we have applications that stored in a file system, stored in relational database, uh, stored in relational databases, stored in OWL files, you know, um, stored... So it's all serialization instead. It's a, it's a traditional middleware approach to correct. storage. That's correct. Right. I, I'm building something very similar to, um, well, let me put it a different way. I'm building, I, I'm building something that uses your concepts very closely, but I do just, you know, I move offline with you on several issues and made pages of notes today and comments, so I'm not really sure how fast I can digest it all, but, um, 
Uh, my architecture uses object database technology for its application, and in that, of course, you have other options, and you can avoid most of your transformations during process. And because it's using object database storage, you have code plus content and property sheets and all sorts of identifiers that are embedded into a single object, which would encompass all your analytics and many of the things that you're trying to create uh, to use ULIMA. I mean, you can. In my case, I'm building uh, concepts of context and putting in lots of features and facts about them, and then the object database search engines are able to search at many different levels. The keyword is one of many, in addition to other things I can do. Uh, and also, just a quick note, uh, in the open source community, there are a few architectures that warrant a look-see for potential uh, UEMA. Um, I don't know. It sounds like there'd be a lot of work, but I'm not sure to use UEMA on, you know, embedded on this architecture or not. But Plus CPS, which is a French-developed uh, uh, enterprise content management framework, might have great potential if someone took the time to look at it. So much is already developed in Zope plus the CPS that uh, using UEMA as the analytical part of it, it might be just really a great combination. I'm going to take a look at it. Okay, yeah, I think those are really good points, and I think you're exactly, you know, got, got this right. Um, UEMA is meant to be embeddable on different systems middleware, and um, as in fact, it's been been suggested by several folks that combining um, the the, the CAS, uh, back-end CAS storage and searching with an object database is a really good match. Others have suggested that actually making the CAS while it's being accessed by the annotator is a pers uh, persistent. Uh, that making it persistence again against an object database might be a really good idea as well. So um, those what are I'm suggesting is the CAS itself can be the, be an object uh, within the object database. Yes, and you can break it down and refine it, which might offer some flexibility that you don't have when you have to continually serialize and deserialize back and forth from a relational storage. Well, okay, uh, yeah, you're right. Um, we don't serialize and deserialize from a relational storage in a typical pipeline. So, so there's two kinds of things that are going on. There's what we call per-document analysis and collection-level analysis. So in per-document analysis, um, a bunch of annotators are working on a particular document. You, know, you can think of a bunch of annotators working on a particular document. And um, typically, uh, especially for high-performance scenarios, uh, the annotators are all in, uh, you know, sharing memory or in the same process space, and the cache is in memory, and it needs to be extremely fast access typically because the analytics and, and some of the more interesting, and, and many of the interesting applications, the analytics are the bottleneck. Uh, that's where all the time is spent. And they need to have very fast access to the contents of the cache. So the cache is an in-memory data structure that's shared among all the, among all the analytics. Um, they lo it logically passes from engine to engine, but um, it can be configured to be basically shared memory. When um, if, if you design an app, if you design an application such that one of the analytics is a distributed service, that's when serialization methods are called, and that's serialized and shipped over the network. The other time is when a CAS consumer decides that it wants to do something with the CAS. 
Now, at that point, you're really outside of the Lima architecture because you're, now you're saying, I want to start aggregating all the per-document results to make them accessible to an application. Correct. And at that point, you're sort of outside of the, you're at the boundary of the UEM architecture. And there, that's when you, you might go into a relational database or into a knowledge base or into a search engine index, depending on how the application needs for that metadata to be indexed to support whatever function it's supporting. A really good candidate there, I agree, for a broadcast of applications, may, 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 it may be an object database. But Just my personal opinion, because I've been so involved in re reviewing it and keeping up with it, but Zope represents an architecture which manages your memory for you, which would possibly relieve that bottleneck. And also the fact that Python is more flexible in doing integration from many sources simultaneously, dynamically, whatever way you choose, uh, and it is the key integrator. It frees up the UEMA to do its analysis and let Zope handle the workload. That's no, I, I, no, I, I think that's I think that's a good point, and that's worth exploring. And, and feel free to if you, if you want to, you know, take this offline and discuss it in more yeah, detail. Yeah, on, uh, in the interest, uh, we are already like 13 minutes over time. So, in the interest, this of, is great, uh, by the way. Of having David finish the presentation, uh, maybe we can uh, the discussion can continue over the uh, forum. So David, uh, would okay. Let me let me since we're out of time, let me sort of jump to um, uh, let me take you through actually. What's what's the best slide here? Uh, slide what slide is this? Slide forty forty six, I think. So slide 46, you're looking at um, an interface to this tool uh, that we call the SAW, the Semantic Search Analysis Workbench. And you're looking at the user typed in a query when, what weapons did Iraq produce. And we analyze the query, and if what you're looking at in the middle panel there under interpret query is an interpretation of the query that basically maps that query into uh, uh, more of a semantic form using concepts and relations, and it, and it produced a query that says produces weapon, Weapon and Iraq, where Iraq is a geopolitical entity, and weapon and weapon is a concept from the ontology that the, that the analysis engines found many instances of instances of in documents, and produces weapon as a relationship that a relationship annotation that spans both weapon and Iraq as a geopolitical entity, and when we look at when we do this sort of query uh, versus um, not using the relationship concept. Uh, we end up with a, uh, a much more precise list. We end up with 49 documents rather than 500 documents, where now we're, we're just not having those keywords occur or not just having that concept occur, but now we're having that concept occur within a relationship span for the producer's weapon, and we're able to focus the query down to a point of 49 documents. But also, we do detailed analysis of the documents themselves, looking for the passages that actually do the best represent the best semantic match, and we identify those passages. So there's 88 passages in the result. Now, in the next slide, what's interesting is we use the semantics of the ontology and an understanding of how the corpus was annotated to allow the user to say, I want to be even more specific. So in this case, the user clicks on weapon and says, how can I make this more specific? And we go to the ontology and look at all the specializations of weapon that have been annotated by the analysis engines, we look and we open up the hierarchy under weapon, uh, weapon of mass destruction, WMD, and we see chemical weapon, 
and the user selects that. And now what happens is the weapon concept is replaced by the chemical weapon concept in the query, and when you go to the next slide, you see there's only actually one document where uh, a chemical weapon, in this case poison gas, so notice it's not a keyword match, participates in a producer's weapon relationship. So it's able to basically throttle up the precision, potentially sacrificing some recall, to start to look at documents that are, are you know, are, are really direct hits for my, for my information need in this case. And in this case, exploiting the, the ontological knowledge of how the annotated concepts relate to one another. This is a very good example of interpreting the query as really defining a conceptual space using the knowledge of the ontology for the user to actually specialize the query and, and sort of throttle up the precision uh, in, this, in this case. Now, you can imagine sort of going to keyword search and saying, oh, gee, I want to be more specific. Let me just type in chemical weapon. Well, that's going to match the word chemical weapon, not weapons that happen to be annotated as chemical weapons by the, by the uh, particular analysis engines. So um, I'm going to have to stop there. I'm not going to get to the to knowledge extraction part, but let me sort of con just conclude with the the, uh, the point about knowledge extraction really versus um, annotating the content and being able to search over a combination of keywords and and um, and the annotations. When we talk about knowledge extraction, now we talk about actually looking at, for example, the unstructured information in the documents, looking at the results of the analysis engines, finding persons, places, organizations, events, and relationships between them, and pulling that information out and putting that into a knowledge base. This changes the paradigm quite significantly because the expectations around a knowledge base are very different than the expectations around um, search. So semantic search doesn't give up the idea that I'm still looking for uh, documents or passages, but I'm using the semantics to help me focus uh, uh, and to help me find the most relevant content that I should then read and take a closer look at. In knowledge extraction, um, when I pull the information out and say, gee, I found this relationship between Fred Center and Center Micros, the COO of relationship, and I put it in the knowledge base, I'm taking it out of context, putting it into a knowledge base, and then expecting more direct, precise queries or reasoners to work over it. And here we, we're, we're entering into a different world. We're entering a world with a really different set of expectations. So now if I made a mistake in my annotation, or um, I, I, made, uh, I extracted an inaccurate or imprecise result, or I've taken it out of context where its meaning dramatically changes, I've, I've, lost, I've lost the value of having that information embedded in its original content. I can have much more dramatic errors because I'm, I'm making the assumption that stuff is much more accurate and precise, uh, implicit assumptions. So the whole scenario changes somewhat. But, you know, to, but we can combine these two perspectives. And we can, in our, when we design our applications, we can make the assumption that I'm helping you, uh, the system is helping you formalize, helping you identify candidate knowledge for formalization. Candidate knowledge. So in other words, let me, let me extract facts and entities. Let me put them into a knowledge base. Let me show you them through knowledge base viewers or allow you to query them, you know, with, with a knowledge base query language so you can be very, uh, pointed in your queries. But in the end, let me show you, um, the sets of facts that may match your query and where they come from 
and involve the user in looking at that rather than as final knowledge, as candidate knowledge that you may then select and put into a, a knowledge base that you want to perform more detailed reasoning on. So this kind of balancing again, in other words, exploiting the semantic analyzers for helping you focus on candid formal knowledge, knowledge rather than assuming that what if I extract is perfect. Uh, so anyway, that's the kind of the final point I wanted to make there. And that refers to the last slide, 57, right? Uh, let me see what's on 57. Yes, exactly. Hey, I, is there a comment for one question? A really quick one. Um, uh, does you want to do uh, entity tracking? And when when you look at your um, text, uh, you see the uh, Fred Center, and then later you see the, uh, the president, and later you see he. Uh, do you automatically associate each of those uh, references with Fred Center? So the anal uh, the answer is the analytics do that absolutely. So the analytics that do topic and entity uh, tracking. Um, in that case, they would do an app that would be, that's called an APRA resolution or cross or document or cross document co-reference resolution, determining whether two um, mentions actually refer to the same thing. You have so yes, that, that will do that already. Yes, analytics do that. UEMA, again, is a framework. UEMA alone does not do that. So just to be, again, you know, if you were to go to this website and download the UEMA SDK, you're getting a development kit for creating or reusing analytics that do that. You don't get the analytics. Okay? Well, uh, thank you very much, Dr. Ferrucci. Uh, it has been an extremely enlightening uh, presentation, and you made a compelling case on, uh, to us in uh, further considering adopting UEMA. Uh, on behalf of the community, uh, let's thank you one more time, and we look forward to engaging you in further discussions. Thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk to you folks. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye -bye. Yep. Thank you. Thank you.